Chapter Twenty Three of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Three. Miriam had traversed half the length of the village street when a score of white-robed negroes and half-castes leaped out upon her from the dark interiors of surrounding huts. She turned to flee, but heavy hands seized her, and when she turned at last to plead with them, her eyes fell upon the face of a tall, grim old man, glaring down upon her from beneath the folds of his burnoose. At sight of him she staggered back in shocked and terrified surprise, it was the sheik. Instantly all the old fears and terrors of her childhood returned upon her. She stood trembling before this horrible old man, as a murderer before the judge about to pass sentence of death upon him. She knew that the sheik recognized her. The years and the changed raiment had not altered her so much, but what one who had known her features so well in childhood would know her now. "'So you have come back to your people, eh?' snarled the sheik. "'Come back begging for food and protection, eh?' "'Let me go,' cried the girl. "'I ask nothing of you but that you let me go back to the big buana.' "'The big buana?' almost screamed the sheik, and then followed a stream of profane Arabic invective against the white man, whom all the transgressors of the jungle feared and hated." You would go back to the big buona, would you? So that is where you have been since you ran away from me, is it? And who comes now across the river after you? The big buona? The Swede, whom you once chased away from your country, when he and his companion conspired with Nabida to steal me from you, replied Meriam. The sheik's eyes blazed, and he called his men to approach the shore and hide among the bushes that they might ambush and annihilate Malbin and his party but Malbin already had landed, and crawling through the fringe of jungle was at that very moment looking with wide and incredulous eyes upon the scene being enacted in the street of the deserted village. He recognized the sheik the moment his eyes fell upon him. There were two men in the world that Malbin feared, as he feared the devil. One was the big buana, and the other the sheik. A single glance he took at that gaunt, familiar figure, and then he turned tail and scurried back to his canoe, calling his followers after him. And so it happened that the party was well out in the stream before the sheik reached the shore, and after a volley and a few parting shots that were returned from the canoes, the Arab called his men off and, securing his prisoner, set off toward the south. One of the bullets from Malbin's force had struck a black standing in the village street where he had been left with another to guard Miriam, and his companions had left him where he had fallen, after appropriating his apparel and belongings. His was the body that Baines had discovered when he had entered the village. The sheik and his party had been marching southward along the river when one of them, dropping out of line to fetch water, had seen Miriam paddling desperately from the opposite shore. The fellow had called the sheik's attention to the strange sight, a white woman alone in Central Africa and the old Arab had hidden his men in the deserted village to capture her when she landed, for thoughts of ransom were always in the mind of the sheik. More than once before had glittering gold filtered through his fingers from a similar source. It was easy money, 
and the sheik had none too much easy money since the big buana had so circumscribed the limits of his ancient domain that he dared not even steal ivory from natives within two hundred miles of the big buana's duar and when at last the woman had walked into the trap he had set for her and he had recognized her as the same little girl he had brutalized and maltreated years before his gratification had been huge now he lost no time in establishing the old relations of father and daughter that had existed between them in the past at the first opportunity he struck her a heavy blow across the face he forced her to walk when he might have dismounted one of his men instead or had her carried on a horse's rump he seemed to revel in the discovery of new methods for torturing or humiliating her and among all his followers she found no single one to offer her sympathy or who dared defend her even had they had the desire to do so a two days march brought them at last to the familiar scenes of her childhood and the first face upon which she set her eyes as she was driven through the gates into the strong stockade was that of the toothless hideous mabunu her one-time nurse it was as though all the years that had intervened were but a dream had it not been for her clothing and the fact that she had grown in stature she might well have believed it so all was there as she had left it the new faces which supplanted some of the old were of the same bestial degraded type there were a few young arabs who had joined the sheik since she had been away otherwise all was the same all but one geeka was not there and she found herself missing geeka as though the ivory-headed one had been a flesh-and-blood intimate and friend she missed her ragged little confidant into whose deaf ears she had been wont to pour her many miseries and her occasional joys geeka of the splinter limbs and the rat-skin torso geeka the disreputable geeka the beloved for a time the inhabitants of the sheik's village who had not been upon the march with him amused themselves by inspecting the strangely clad white girl whom some of them had known as a little child mabunu pretended great joy at her return baring her toothless gums in a hideous grimace that was intended to be indicative of rejoicing but Miriam could but shudder as she recalled the cruelties of this terrible old hag in the years gone by among the arabs who had come in her absence was a tall young fellow of twenty a handsome sinister-looking youth who stared at her in open admiration until the sheik came and ordered him away and abdul kamak went scowling at last their curiosity satisfied miriam was alone as of old she was permitted the freedom of the village for the stockade was high and strong and the only gates were well guarded by day and by night but as of old she cared not for the companionship of the cruel arabs and the degraded blacks who formed the following of the sheik and so as had been her wont in the sad days of her childhood she slunk down to an unfrequented corner of the enclosure where she had often played at housekeeping with her beloved geeka beneath the spreading branches of the great tree that had overhung the palisade but now the tree was gone and miriam guessed the reason it was from this tree that korak had descended and struck down the sheik the day that he had rescued her from the life of misery and torture that had been her lot for so long that she could remember no other there were low bushes growing within the stockade however 
and in the shade of these Miriam sat down to think. A little glow of happiness warmed her heart as she recalled her first meeting with Korak, and then the long years that he had cared for and protected her with the solicitude and purity of an elder brother. For months Korak had not so occupied her thoughts as he did today. He seemed closer and dearer now than ever he had before, and she wondered that her heart had drifted so far from loyalty to his memory. And then came the image of the Honorable Morrison, the exquisite, and Miriam was troubled. Did she really love the flawless young Englishman? She thought of the glories of London of which he had told her in such glowing language. She tried to picture herself admired and honored in the midst of the gayest society of the great capital. The pictures she drew were the pictures that the Honorable Morrison had drawn for her. They were alluring pictures, but through them all the brawny, half-naked figure of the giant Adonis of the jungle persisted in obtruding itself. Miriam pressed her hand above her heart as she stifled a sigh, and as she did so she felt the hard outlines of the photograph she had hidden there as she slunk from Malbin's tent. Now she drew it forth and commenced to re-examine it more carefully than she had had time to do before. She was sure that the baby face was hers. She studied every detail of the picture. Half hidden in the lace of the dainty dress rested a chain and locket. Miriam puckered her brows. What tantalizing half-memories it awakened! Could this flower of evident civilization be the little Arab Miriam, daughter of the sheik? It was impossible. And yet that locket! Miriam knew it. She could not refute the conviction of her memory. She had seen that locket before, and it had been hers. What strange mystery lay buried in her past! As she sat gazing at the picture, she suddenly became aware that she was not alone, that someone was standing close behind her, someone who had approached her noiselessly. Guiltily she thrust the picture back into her waist. A hand fell upon her shoulder. She was sure that it was the sheik, and she awaited in dumb terror the blow that she knew would follow. No blow came, and she looked upward over her shoulder into the eyes of Abdul Kamak, the young Arab. "'I saw,' he said, "'the picture that you have just hidden. It is you when you were a child, a very young child. May I see it again?' Miriam drew away from him. "'I will give it back,' he said. "'I have heard of you, and I know that you have no love for the sheik, your father. Neither have I.' I will not betray you. Let me see the picture. Friendless among cruel enemies, Miriam clutched at the straw that Abdul Kamak held out to her. Perhaps in him she might find the friend she needed. Anyway, he had seen the picture, and if he was not a friend he could tell the sheik about it, and it would be taken away from her. So she might as well grant his request and hope that he had spoken fairly, and would deal fairly. She drew the photograph from its hiding-place and handed it to him. Abdul Kamak examined it carefully, comparing it feature by feature with the girl sitting on the ground looking up into his face. Slowly he nodded his head. Yes, he said, it is you. But where was it taken? How does it happen that the sheik's daughter is clothed in the garments of the unbeliever? 
"'I do not know,' replied Miriam. "'I never saw the picture until a couple of days ago, when I found it in the tent of the Swede, Malbin.' Abdul Kamak raised his eyebrows. He turned the picture over, and as his eyes fell upon the old newspaper cutting, they went wide. He could read French with difficulty, it is true, but he could read it. He had been to Paris. He had spent six months there with a troop of his desert fellows, upon exhibition, and he had improved his time, learning many of the customs, some of the language, and most of the vices of his conquerors. Now he put his learning to use. Slowly, laboriously, he read the yellowed cutting. His eyes were no longer wide. Instead, they narrowed to two slits of cunning. When he had done, he looked at the girl. "'You have read these?' he asked. "'It is French,' she replied, "'and I do not read French.' Abdul Kamak stood long in silence, looking at the girl. She was very beautiful. He desired her, as had many other men who had seen her. At last he dropped to one knee beside her. A wonderful idea had sprung to Abdul Kamak's mind. It was an idea that might be furthered if the girl were kept in ignorance of the contents of that newspaper cutting. It would certainly be doomed should she learn its contents. Miriam, he whispered, never until today have my eyes beheld you, yet at once they told my heart that it must ever be your servant. You do not know me, but I ask that you trust me. I can help you. You hate the sheik. So do I. Let me take you away from him. Come with me, and we will go back to the great desert where my father is a sheik, mightier than is yours. Will you come? Miriam sat in silence. She hated to wound the only one who had offered her protection and friendship, but she did not want Abdul Kamak's love. Deceived by her silence, the man seized her and strained her to him, but Miriam struggled to free herself. "'I do not love you,' she cried. "'Oh, please, do not make me hate you. You are the only one who has shown kindness toward me, and I want to like you, but I cannot love you.' Abdul Kamak drew himself to his full height. "'You will learn to love me,' he said, "'for I shall take you whether you will or no. You hate the sheik, and so you will not tell him, for if you do I will tell him of the picture.' I hate the sheik, and— You hate the sheik, came a grim voice from behind them. Both turned to see the sheik standing a few paces from them. Abdul still held the picture in his hand. Now he thrust it within his burnoose. Yes, he said, I hate the sheik. And as he spoke he sprang toward the older man, felled him with a blow, and dashed on across the village to the line where his horse was picketed, saddled, and ready for Abdul Kamak had been about to ride forth to hunt when he had seen the stranger girl alone by the bushes. Leaping into the saddle, Abdul Kamak dashed for the village gates. The sheik, momentarily stunned by the blow that had felled him, now staggered to his feet, shouting lustily to his followers to stop the escaped Arab. A dozen blacks leaped forward to intercept the horsemen, only to be ridden down or brushed aside by the muzzle of Abdul Kamak's long musket, which he lashed from side to side about him as he spurred on toward the gate. But here he must surely be intercepted. Already the two blacks stationed there were pushing the unwieldy portals to. 
Up flew the barrel of the fugitive's weapon. With reins flying loose and his horse at a mad gallop, the son of the desert fired once, twice, and both the keepers of the gate dropped in their tracks. With a wild whoop of exultation, twirling his musket high above his head and turning in his saddle to laugh back into the faces of his pursuers, Abdul Kamak dashed out of the village of the Sheik and was swallowed up by the jungle. Foaming with rage, the Sheik ordered immediate pursuit and then strode rapidly back to where Miriam sat huddled by the bushes where he had left her. "'The picture!' he cried. "'What picture did the dog speak of? Where is it? Give it to me at once!' "'He took it,' replied Miriam dully. "'What was it?' again demanded the sheik, seizing the girl roughly by the hair and dragging her to her feet, where he shook her venomously. "'What was it a picture of?' "'Of me,' said Miriam, "'when I was a little girl. I stole it from Malbin, the Swede.' It had printing on the back cut from an old newspaper. The sheik went white with rage. What said the printing? he asked in a voice so low that she but barely caught his words. I do not know. It was in French, and I cannot read French. The sheik seemed relieved. He almost smiled. Nor did he again strike Miriam before he turned and strode away with the parting admonition that she speak never again to any other than Mabunu and himself. And along the caravan trail galloped Abdul Kamak toward the north. As his canoe drifted out of sight and range of the wounded Swede, the Honorable Morrison sank weakly to its bottom, where he lay for hours in partial stupor. It was night before he fully regained consciousness, and then he lay for a long time looking up at the stars and trying to recollect where he was, what accounted for the gently rocking motion of the thing upon which he lay, and why the position of the stars changed so rapidly and miraculously. For a while he thought he was dreaming, but when he would have moved to shake sleep from him, the pain of his wound recalled to him the events that had led up to his present position. Then it was that he realized that he was floating down a great African river in a native canoe, alone, wounded, and lost. Painfully he dragged himself to a sitting position. He noticed that the wound pained him less than he had imagined it would. He felt of it gingerly. It had ceased to bleed. Possibly it was but a flesh wound after all, and nothing serious. If it totally incapacitated him even for a few days, it would mean death, for by that time he would be too weakened by hunger and pain to provide food for himself. From his own troubles his mind turned to Miriam's, that she had been with the Swede at the time he had attempted to reach the fellow's camp he naturally believed but he wondered what would become of her now. Even if Hanson died of his wounds, would Miriam be any better off? She was in the power of equally villainous men, brutal savages of the lowest order. Baines buried his face in his hands and rocked back and forth as the hideous picture of her fate burned itself into his consciousness. And it was he who had brought this fate upon her, his wicked desire had snatched a pure and innocent girl from the protection of those who loved her to hurl her into the clutches of the bestial Swede and his outcast following. And not until it had become too late 
had he realized the magnitude of the crime he himself had planned and contemplated. Not until it had become too late had he realized that greater than his desire, greater than his lust, greater than any passion he had ever felt before, was the newborn love that burned within his breast for the girl he would have ruined. The Honorable Morrison Baines did not fully realize the change that had taken place within him, had one suggested that he ever had been aught than the soul of honor and chivalry he would have taken umbrage forthwith. He knew that he had done a vile thing when he had plotted to carry Miriam away to London, yet he excused it on the ground of his great passion for the girl having temporarily warped his moral standards by the intensity of its heat. But, as a matter of fact, a new Baines had been born. Never again could this man be bent to dishonor by the intensity of a desire. His moral fiber had been strengthened by the mental suffering he had endured. His mind and his soul had been purged by sorrow and remorse. His one thought now was to atone, win to Miriam's side, and lay down his life, if necessary, in her protection. His eyes sought the length of the canoe in search of the paddle, for a determination had galvanized him to immediate action, despite his weakness and his wound. But the paddle was gone. He turned his eyes toward the shore. Dimly, through the darkness of a moonless night, he saw the awful blackness of the jungle. Yet it touched no responsive chord of terror within him now, as it had done in the past. He did not even wonder that he was unafraid, for his mind was entirely occupied with thoughts of another's danger. Drawing himself to his knees, he leaned over the edge of the canoe, and commenced to paddle vigorously with his open palm. Though it tired and hurt him, he kept assiduously at his self-imposed labor for hours. Little by little the drifting canoe moved nearer and nearer the shore. The Honorable Morrison could hear a lion roaring directly opposite him, and so close that he felt he must be almost to the shore. He drew his rifle closer to his side, but he did not cease to paddle. After what seemed to the tired man an eternity of time, he felt the brush of branches against the canoe and heard the swirl of the water about them. A moment later he reached out and clutched a leafy limb, Again the lion roared, very near it seemed now, and Baines wondered if the brute could have been following along the shore, waiting for him to land. He tested the strength of the limb to which he clung. It seemed strong enough to support a dozen men. Then he reached down and lifted his rifle from the bottom of the canoe, slipping the sling over his shoulder. Again he tested the branch, and then reaching upward as far as he could for a safe hold, he drew himself painfully and slowly upward until his feet swung clear of the canoe, which, released, floated silently from beneath him to be lost forever in the blackness of the dark shadows downstream. He had burned his bridges behind him. He must either climb aloft or drop back into the river, but there had been no other way. He struggled to raise one leg over the limb, but found himself scarce equal to the effort, for he was very weak. For a time he hung there, feeling his strength ebbing. He knew that he must gain the branch above at once, or it would be too late. Suddenly the lion roared, almost in his ear. Baines glanced up. He saw two spots of flame a short distance from and above him. The lion was standing on the bank of the river, glaring at him, 
and waiting for him. Well, thought the Honorable Morrison, let him wait. Lions can't climb trees, and if I get into this one I shall be safe enough from him. The young Englishman's feet hung almost to the surface of the water, closer than he knew, for all was pitch dark below as above him. Presently he heard a slight commotion in the river beneath him, and something banged against one of his feet, followed almost instantly by a sound that he felt he could not have mistaken, the click of great jaws snapping together. "'By George!' exclaimed the Honorable Morrison aloud. "'The beggar nearly got me!' and immediately he struggled again to climb higher and to comparative safety, but with that final effort he knew that it was futile. Hope that had survived persistently until now began to wane. He felt his tired, numbed fingers slipping from their hold. He was dropping back into the river, into the jaws of the frightful death that awaited him there. And then he heard the leaves above him rustle to the movement of a creature among them, the branch to which he clung bent beneath an added weight, and no light weight, from the way it sagged. But still Baines clung desperately. He would not give up voluntarily, either to the death above or the death below. He felt a soft, warm pad upon the fingers of one of his hands, where they circled the branch to which he clung, and then something reached down out of the blackness above and dragged him up among the branches of the tree. End of chapter 23